This is Unstructured. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Unstructured. Today I have with me Susie Rosenstein. Susie's been introduced to us from Jill Angie, who appeared in episode 11. And Susie is a life coach, which I'm eminently curious about. I've I've heard the term thrown about, but I'm kind of lost. What exactly is a life coach? Well, seriously, you don't know what one is. We are everywhere. <laughs> a life coach is somebody who really cares about helping you get perspective on your brain, on your thinking, so that you can basically up-level your life and create what you want to create without a lot of drama and a lot of things getting in the way that you have control over, but you probably don't understand that you do just yet. <laughs> How's that? Okay. Almost a little new agey, <laughs> but okay. Um, I understand you have a background in psychology. I do. I have a master's in applied social psychology. And when I first got into coaching, I thought that that uh, background would be really um helpful. And it's, as it turns out, it was helpful, but in a way that I didn't expect. So the orientation of my degree was in applied research. And so the work that I did back then a million years ago in the 80s <laughs> was um, around the qualitative, um, a qualitative methodology in the long interview, like ethnographic research. And it turns out that my interviewing skills and my ability to look for patterns and to really understand what the other person is saying from their perspective, that is what has been a really useful skill in coaching. So I was, um, when I did my research, I was looking at the relationship between children and their pet dogs. <laughs> and I had, you know, pages and pages and pages of transcripts, verbatim transcripts mm -hmm. to sort through to look at the patterns and to see what was happening from the children's perspective. So it turns out that with coaching, you're asking a lot of questions and you're really, really listening and listening for the exact language that the client used to describe uh, what's going on for them. And then that is what you use to help um, show the client what they're thinking. And you use that as a springboard to ask more questions. So it's those keen listening skills and asking good questions and looking for patterns. That's what was really useful from my psychology background. And my, my I, I mean, all along, I just was very attracted to helping people and trying to understand mm -hmm. human behavior and why people do what they do, why I do what I do. So I've always been interested in psychology. It goes way back. But um, coaching... I didn't fully understand what coaching was when I was first just superficially attracted to it. That's interesting. You're I'm talking about interviewing skills um, not to segue into it. When you're saying you hear patterns and recognition and style, do you kind of mimic them to help facilitate the communication? Not necessarily intentionally, but fall into the same pattern for a give and take um, rhythm. And uh, no, actually that, I haven't thought about that, but one of the focus group strategies was to um, to use some um, visual cues like I would it, not with coaching because I don't coach in person. I coach on the phone, uh, but I might lean in or I might raise my eyebrows to encourage them to uh, talk more. And I would say I don't it's not about the the voice patterns. It's more about like I'm taking careful, careful notes and I'm looking for their exact language. So when I ask them something based on something they said, I don't interpret it. I'm yet like there's no interpretation at the beginning. I'm just getting clarification for their exact language and looking for clues that way about getting helping them get perspective on their mind. Okay, so it may not be even what they say and maybe how they say it or what's not being said, but you're digging up clues based on their emotional reactions and ties and things of that sort. Would it, that be it's very much based on what they actually say. So if they say something, I might ask hmm. them why or what they make that mean to dig a little bit further, but I'm not going to interpret what they said. 
I'm looking for patterns. So after we've been coaching for a while and I have a lot of notes and I can see maybe that they used the same language in a few um, types of scenarios, things that they're struggling with or things that they're trying to understand that's going on now. But yeah, it's not about interpreting. It's about helping the client understand what they're thinking so that they can make better decisions about what they want. It helps them see what's going on for them in a different way. It gives them perspective on their thinking. But is everybody that clear? Um, I, I know a lot of people who may say things, but what they say isn't always there. Or do you kind of get to that over time and repetition that eventually they will say it? Well, if I ask why enough, it comes out. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, uh, Like the little kid? Yeah, usually why? what happens, you know, it's one of our best tools. So if, if somebody says something and I say, oh, that's interesting, why? Then they give me an answer. And mm. then I might even say why again or what you make that mean. And sometimes what's really going on for them, the like the, the real juicy kernel of the thought or the belief that's creating the results that they're having right now might be two or three thoughts under the one that they're aware of or the one that they talk about more freely. Okay, so they may not even know it necessarily. They may not have put it together. They may not have the awareness that they're thinking it, and they may not have put it together with the thought that they're aware of. So that's what I mean about... Mm-hmm. Um, showing people their thinking because that little question why can just reveal the best stuff. <laughs> it's really a good one. And I'm guessing by they, I really should say we, because I'm sure everybody's guilty. Oh, of it. It, it, yeah. I wouldn't even say guilty. It's just a common, it's, it's how we humanoids tend to, to act. You know, we just tend to get into habits about thinking things a certain way. We have beliefs, which are really just, thoughts that we think over and over again. And, you know, if you go, if you hang out with your friends or if you're talking to your family, a lot of your friends and family aren't going to ask you why they're not going to challenge you. Mm -hmm. They're just going to go with the flow because their role in your life is different. But as a coach, as much as I love you and care for you and want the best for you, I'm not your best (laughs) friend. And it is something that we discuss at the beginning, because I say, I'm going to ask you questions. You might get frustrated that I'm asking you why, uh, but it's my job to really help you understand what's going on so that you can make decisions um, based on helping you really move forward and up-level your life, so to speak. How, how do you feel about the frustration? Is that actually a good thing? Because that maybe means you're getting to the bottom of something, or is it hard for you to dig? Oh, it, it's, doesn't matter to me. I love it when somebody labels a feeling. <laughs> I think it's great. The more awareness you have about a feeling is is amazing because what happens is thoughts create feelings. So the way we like to um, where I was trained at the life coach school and and the way I um, was trained to think about thoughts is that they are sentences in your mind. They are subjective. They are sentences in your mind. And if 10 people were in a room looking at, um, let's say, a number on the scale, for example, we wouldn't all have the same thought about what we're seeing. Like if it said 150, that would be neutral and it would be factual. So if 10 people were in a room looking at a scale that said 150, we would all agree, yes, that scale says 150. But you ask ask the same 10 people what that means, you're going to get 10 different answers because for somebody, it's going to be the most they've ever weighed. And they feel horrible Mm -hmm. about themselves. For somebody else, it's going to be the least they've ever weighed. And they're jumping for joy. For somebody else who just lost 100 pounds, they're beside themselves, even if they have 20 more pounds to lose. It it represents, it means something different to them. And then our thoughts create our feelings. And our feelings can be described as uh, a vibration in your body. And typically, they're described by one word. Things you're very familiar with, Mm -hmm. happy, sad, frustrated, uh, calm. So I love it when somebody is has a feeling that they can talk about and then I help them understand the thought that's creating that feeling. This is why I, I love talking to people like you and others is there's so many cross disciplines. Like, have you heard of Jonathan Haidt or Haidt uh, or Daniel Kahneman? Um, these are some neuroscientists um, or psychologists and their whole angle is actually we let's see Kahneman has what is called fast and slow thinking 
as an example. And fast thinking is your reaction. You just, somebody says something and you're wired in, boom, and you just react. And then you have slow thinking, and that's when you actually step back and you go, hmm, how do I feel about that? And Jonathan Haidt talks about it, and it's the rider and the elephant. And your feelings are the elephant. And they pull you every direction you go. It's not really thoughts that drive you, it's feelings that drive you. And the rider has to kind of guide that elephant and sort of get a handle on what those feelings are to try to um, get this 800,000-pound beast inside of us to sort of move more kindly. I love all the cross-linkages. And and so the rest of the thought model, after we have a feeling, you're absolutely right, the feelings drive behavior. Feelings drive everything we do, and then we do something, and then we create a result. There's a result after we do something, a personal result, and then what happens in this thought model, this framework, is that our results always prove our thoughts, always. So then what we're able to look at within the context of this framework is if we are interested, if we're like um, happy, if we're satisfied with the results that we're creating in our life. So if we're not Mm -hmm. satisfied, then the wiggle room is the part that's subjective. It's the thinking. So you're able to see that there are other options that will create different feelings, that will drive different behavior, that will create a different outcome for you. And it's very empowering once you see what you're currently thinking and what's creating for you and what the possibilities are, and they're endless. But you can't just do this in a snap. It's not all rainbows and daisies. You can't just say, okay, I've had it. I'm going to think something else now. It's kind of like um, unpeeling an onion where you really have to give yourself time to look at things, to sit with it, to understand it, to really, um, I describe it as taking a flashlight and kind of shining it on your brain and seeing what's going around in there. <laughs> See what's going on and uh, and just take the time. But I like uh, that analogy you gave of slowing things down because as like once you have awareness and you have a pretty good idea of the way you're um, the way you typically handle certain things because of your thoughts, then you right. can decide to give yourself a pause when you see that happening And you can kind of manage your brain. And it's kind of like talking to yourself, really. But you see what's happening. I did this recently with anxiety, where I'm very um, aware of when I have an anxious feeling. I know exactly what it feels like. I can feel it coming on. And now, doing this work, I'm much better at understanding exactly what I'm thinking that's creating that feeling. And now I'm able... Do you have tripwires within yourself then to catch it? It's just... um, well, it's a reaction in my gut, so I can I can feel it very quickly. But before, I would okay. just kind of be at the effect of it, and I wouldn't really understand how to get myself out of the spin of it. And now I mm-hmm. recognize what happens. I can see, I, like I can feel it. And now I've done enough work on myself to understand, okay, I can pause. Anxiety's not going to kill me. And I can just pause for a second and really try to get at the thought that's creating it knowing full well that I have the ability to think about it in different ways. And because I've done this thought work, I have some thoughts ready (laughs) that I know are pretty reliable go-tos that will help me uh, think something else, feel something else, and that won't be that anxious spin. And um, that's what's so empowering about it. So after you do this kind of work, you're able to... (laughs) I have a funny little analogy. I don't know... Um, you look like you're about the same age, so you'll probably get it. Do you remember the Flintstones? Okay, oh, do you course. remember the Great Gazoo? Vaguely, he's yeah. The little green. The blue dude. The little, yeah, he's like dude, a little so. green Martian that would like buzz around Fred's head, like with his mm-hmm. alter ego. So I always imagine right. um, the Great Gazoo kind of watching what's going on in my head. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's kind of this metacognitive skill of being able to see what you're thinking. And it's a reminder that we are not our thoughts. We're our, we're a watcher of our thoughts. And with that greater perspective, you are able to create a pause that allows you to be um, much more able to manage your thinking and to decide on purpose how you want to feel like you're managing your mind, knowing that those thoughts are creating those feelings. 
I'm going to do another crossover. I can't help it. But um, I had Adam Hansen on. He wrote um, Outsmart Your Instincts, and he's an innovation expert. And he talked a lot about this, and this comes out of how we are biologically wired in evolution. And a lot of what you're saying is we're wired to immediately have fear and to just go away. Because back in the day, if Og heard a noise and Thor also heard a noise and Og left, Thor would die and be eaten by something most likely. So the DNA carried forward based on the fear. So right now, as he put it, and I think you're kind of saying something really similar, and I like tying them together because it helps me to understand. Um, we are trying to rewire because we don't have to worry as much. We don't have to fear. We're in a relatively comfortable environment now, and we need to kind of move beyond because we've evolved very slowly, and the world has sped up so fast that we haven't caught up internally to it. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's it exactly. Uh, our brain wants to protect us and keep us safe. And anytime we want to stretch, like with things like innovation, or we want to evolve personally and do things that are a little scary, <laughs> like with business right. goals or even doing your podcast for the first time, I was scared. <laughs> so, <Still laughs> right. So <laughs> if we trusted our unsupervised brain, we'd be back in the cave, not doing anything new. Because you're right. If you tried to do this sort of stuff before, a mistake could, could end your life. So you're absolutely right. I love that example that you just gave. Um, yeah. And so the more awareness that you have about your ability to have perspective on your thinking and to um, manage your mind and be more intentional about what you're thinking, how you're feeling, your, the results that you're creating, the better. And to use another reference from the late 60s, early 70s, I, I always think of I dream a genie. Like once that genie's out of the bottle, mm. once you have awareness, it's very hard mm. to forget that you have awareness. That's true. Like, I, I love a lot of the stuff is so meta yeah. because it's self-describing and it just goes in a circle and you, you can get really deep into some. Yeah. Now, the other thing that you have to remember is that people that usually engage in coaching are very ready for change. So people, these are mm. people who want to um, solve these problems, who want to uplevel their lives, who want to function at a higher level, right? So my clients are very mm. excited. They're stuck. Like my primary group of um, uh, women, my niche, they're midlife women. And they're stuck mm -hmm. and frustrated. And they're like, enough, I've had it. Let's move on. I want to get excited about my life again. And so when you're really ready to change, it's not like they need a lot of convincing that this is a roadmap to change. <laughs> well, again, uh, to twist off, um, I also coach runners from time to time and know Jill through, um, she's also a runner. So I, I do a lot of analogies with running because I understand yeah. that well. But I do kind of wonder, is there an, an analogy to be made that sometimes a lot of my coaching is people are excited about running and they want to do more? And I actually have to pull them back a little bit because they'll get injured. Hmm. Is there the psychological equivalent or um, the life potential equivalent that someone could say, whoa, I'm going to change my life. I quit my job today. I'm done. And it's like, well, well you might, you know, you kind of still have to pay rent. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just wondering if, if you ever have to kind of, you know, temper some of the... Um, joy and exuberance. Wow. That has not been my experience because my, um, the women I work with are usually much more hesitant about making the change. When they come to me, mm -hmm. they know that there's more out there. Like they're, they're in this headspace that life is passing me by. It's a midlife funk. Life is passing me by. There's gotta be more there out there for me. Is this all there is? I don't feel right. I feel off. What is going on? So that's where they're at and they are looking for help to move forward. Um, and it, when career does career comes up very, it's very, very common about what people are thinking about is wrong. Um, they aren't very quick to make a change, but they are questioning. Many of them are questioning whether or not a change needs to be made. 
But we go through mm-hmm. a period of, of really looking at things, looking at what has made them joyful, what they're looking for, what is missing. And then one of the coaching strategies we teach is to try to be very happy and satisfied with what you have before you make mm-hmm. a decision to change. Because you can do whatever you want to do, but you want to really make sure that you're you really like your reasons and you don't want to make a decision based on fear or frustration. That makes sense. That makes sense. And do some of your clients actually find the joy within what they are currently doing and say, you know what? Hey, uh, I don't need to change. Yes, I've. I just need to change myself. Yeah, I've had that. And how I reflect on things. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I've seen it go both ways. And it's really why you can't rush the exploration. Um, see, the thing is, with midlife, most of us, um, I'm in my mid-50s, like most of us haven't thought about what we really wanted in decades, mm-hmm. right? So the last time right. we really, really worked on thinking about what we want was usually between 18 and 21, 22. <laughs> that was a big one. And then sometimes if you've got, uh, made a decision to go on for further education, professional school, law school, med school, something mm-hmm. like that, then at that point, there's a big decision of which direction to go. But after that... By the way, that's a female perspective. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> because men are probably uh, seven to 10 years behind you. In- men don't really think as early and... I do think there's a biological aspect to it and biological clock, but men tend to be more irresponsible for longer. It's just, just in the, in the nature. I mean, and you will find like you're saying 18 to 21, 22, it's like, yeah, like you get a guy, he's in college party. <laughs> and the only reason he's going to, you know, finish up and do whatever his job is, he's probably forced to by his parents or somebody's paying the bill or he joins the military and some outside force is kind of pushing it down. But you'll find that men don't really start to get it together until like 27 to 30, somewhere in that range. Well, it's it's really interesting that you brought that up. And you're right. Like I have three young men as my sons, um, 19, 21 and 22. And um, Mm -hmm. but I am right now, I'm not speaking from their perspective. I'm speaking from all these women who are mostly... um, you know, really struggling with this sort of thing. And, and the other thing I find that it's not always age, but it's often stage. So sometimes I've had several people who have um, hit their goals professionally in their early thirties and they're having Mm -hmm. a midlife funk. Um, Other ones, Mm -hmm. you know, the turning 50, the 50 milestone is a big one for many. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a 20 year anniversary in a job. Sometimes it's an, it's an event like somebody you know um, died tragically uh, or mm. you're all of a sudden caring from your, for your parents, that kind of thing is usually, usually there's an event or there's just a gradual buildup of frustration. And with career, I call it career malaise, like something is right. off. And when it happened to me, I really felt um, depressed. I was concerned that I had depression. I actually saw my doctor about it and it turned out it it wasn't depression at all. It was a lot of stress and a lot of confusion. And quite frankly, it was a classic midlife funk. Hmm. So um, what is really interesting is that people don't even know how to dream. It's been such a long time since they've really thought about what they wanted. And the other thing is we get into such a habit of, poo-pooing ideas that pop into our head. Like all of a sudden it's not what we want. It's how you're going to do it. Oh, it's hard. Oh, I'm too old. Oh, it's too expensive. Close it down. I I don't have time. Exactly. Close it down right away. So even if a dream pops in, it often gets squished right out because of all this chatter. Sure. Sure. And then there's people around us too. You don't have time for that. So, um, that makes me consider if mastery is part of, what's happening and financial freedom with the in the sense um when when you start out in a career let's say somebody's doing it they're scrambling to get knowledge on how to accomplish it then they're scrambling to get ahead within their career to find their lane and to travel within it you know whatever it is it could be competing against others or themselves or whatever that generally takes a chunk of time. 
especially when there's different levels. You know, you take the 10,000 hour rules and different things like that to become an expert. And then you get another level, like let's say you supervise, there's another boom period of time. And I would, I think that midlife kind of corresponds to about the time that financial freedom sets in, that kids start to leave the house and maybe, maybe it's time to taper things back. You know your job, you've done it, you got it down. There's re- you're not really learning anything. And now you have time to look around and you go, wow, where's the poetry in my life? I love that analogy. Um, you know, the empty nest thing, I think, is probably a different experience for men and women. Again, I've talked to many more women sure. about it than men. So I'm curious to hear your take on it. But uh, uh, the empty nest thing is there's a lot of stress around it and a lot of questioning about who am I now. And like you said too, what do I do with my time? Uh, Mm -hmm. And some people get very excited about it when they start to get into it and they understand that it's not an ending of these relationships. It's just a transition into having relationships with adult children. So you still have the relationships. They're different. um, And and it does often allow you a little more flexibility with finances and and with uh, your time. Not always the finances, though, because just because the kids are out of the house doesn't mean they're independent. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times the house is paid off about that point or, you know, getting close. Things look different. Um, cars are paid off. It, it, there's a certain threshold, especially if you're advancing in a corporate environment or whatever, that you get used to living on on the means and yeah, you keep increasing with the means, but you kind of hit a threshold where you're like, I'm done. I'm just kind of here. And then the means kind of creep up a little bit more and you're, you know, you're past that. And I think that that now you have the income, but you have no time. And now you say, wow, I want to see the world. I never saw it. Well, it, it, I only see my cubicle, my house, your Grand Canyon trip. (laughs) Wasn't that a good one? Yeah. Um, That was the first, that Grand Canyon trip was the first trip my husband and I took without kids. And I think it was about uh, probably our 15 or 16, 15, 16, 17 years into our marriage. I can't remember exactly when it was now, but um, yeah, that was different. And I couldn't stop thinking. So I'm on, on the Colorado river, whitewater raft, six day trip, whitewater rafting trip. And I'm thinking, wow, the kids would love this trip. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. Yes. Yeah. But that one, they didn't go on. So I think I, I haven't heard that perspective that much from the women I'm speaking to. They're mostly adjusting mm-hmm. to the time issue. What can I do now that I have much more time to focus on my priorities, things that are on my list? Mm-hmm. Uh, because women often, you know, we put ourselves last as moms, as uh, our connections with our kids. And I'm not minimizing the contribution from dads, but no, 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 no. A, your, your, your role is nurturing. nurturing. Men's roles out and conquering and fighting and bat- in general, um, obviously stereotyping, but yes, I think that you are more attached to the home and to the children than most men just by the nature and the relationship. And I, you know, and, and I, and I know it is a stereotype, but the women that, um, and I don't just talk to moms as clients, but the main issue that they've talked about when they're moms and there is a transition is what does this mean to me? And most of them are questioning it, but they're not that uh, they're not that afraid of it. They're they're aware of it, but they're not that afraid of it. So it's interesting. When I first um, started doing this work, I thought there would be more freaking out about it, and I found a lot of Facebook groups where women are expressing their their fears and their loneliness. Um, you know, the adjustments to being less connected to their kids and knowing less about what's going on in their lives and loneliness. Uh, but I haven't found that with my client. My clients are really um, not sure about their roadmap, but they're excited to have a roadmap. And well, that that exuberance probably is a fulfillment in itself. If you if you have something to look forward to, it fills you a lot more. Yes. You feel more angsty if you're lost. Yeah. And so really with my, the people who are, um, that I'm trying to find and who are attracted to my podcast, women in the middle. Well, the title of the podcast is women in the middle, loving life after 50. So it really (laughs) is the perspective that I'm 
talking about. And it, and so these women, it's really about getting clear and then getting excited and then getting going. So they're very, they know full well that they want to get going. Uh, so, but empty nest creates, um, it's definitely a transition that needs to be acknowledged <laughs> because it, there's a lot to it. There's financial there's um, housing situation, and there is all of it, all the emotional stuff. So let's look at you. What exactly um, brought you into life coaching? Let's talk about your story, your funk, as you call it. And it didn't have a groove. It was kind of a low-level thing. <laughs> it was scary, but yeah. So I was um, 27, into, 27 years into um, a career in in the public health field. And so uh, when I graduated from psychology, I, this was back in the late eighties and I got several jobs right out of the newspaper, the old fashioned day way where you, you know, you clipped out an ad and you wrote, typed a letter and sent it in. Sure. <laughs> and, and that's what was going on. And I was able to get my first, um, I think I had five jobs contracts at first, two years, one year, two year, four years, that sort of thing. And then my last job I had for 19 years. And it was in the field of uh, public health, health promotion, health education, um, addiction, mental health, but overall like uh, health. And I really loved the work and I really um, loved making a difference. But what ended up happening in my last job, I had a lot of life changes personally. In my last job, I got married. I had three kids. And mm -hmm. I guess what ended up happening was I started to feel, I didn't understand what it was, but I started to feel bored, this career malaise, even though there was nothing wrong with my job. My job looked amazing on paper. There was a lot to my mm -hmm. job that I was very excited about still. I did some children's books and um, it was exciting work that I had changed. I'd been there too long. And so mm -hmm. as I was exploring what was, well, I started to just poke around and see what I might want to do. I thought about going back and doing a PhD in psychology. I looked at um, getting some education in education. And, and then I, mm -hmm. you know, I made, I made the big list of all the things I liked. I like conservation. Mm -hmm. I like animal welfare. I like whales. I like um, solar energy. Like I just came up with this big giant list <laughs> and really started to think about it. And uh, then, you know, five years of that <laughs> and complaining to every friend right. I had how miserable I was and what should I do? I didn't even know about life coaching at that point. Um, and See, I'm no, no, alone. no, I didn't. And then gradually I started to hear a few friends talking about it, but I just... I don't know, like it just didn't resonate with me at that time. And then eventually I got a layoff notice. So it was one of those classic situations where I thought I'd made it through the restructuring. <laughs> I was feeling pretty safe. Mm. And then I got that knock at the door and I was laid off. And, you know, when it was happening, I had fantasized about being laid off many, many times, mm -hmm. as many people have in long-term jobs. For three to five years, <laughs> yeah. probably. But when it actually happens, it's horrible. It's so sure. scary. Well, it's not your exactly. choice. Exactly. And, oh, my heart was pounding. And and uh, even though I had this little voice thinking, like this little voice saying to me, this is probably a good thing. This is probably a good thing. Even in the middle right. of the, the, the big meeting where they were showing me my options. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, anyway, it took about six months. For me to um, really, really appreciate it, that it was a good thing. In fact, now I think of it as a gift. And I think it might be. I have one question yeah. for you. Would you have left? That is an excellent question. And I was struggling with that. I think I would have left after I became a life coach. But mm -hmm. I did not have the skills to overcome my fear I didn't understand my fear at all. I really didn't understand what was going on while I was in it. So, so it was a gift. It was absolutely a gift. Absolutely a gift. Yeah. Back to my running analogies, I couldn't help but think about it. Would you call a funk like a, a niggle? In running, we have something where we say, 
something doesn't feel quite right while you're running. And we tend to ignore it because we really want to run. And then that niggle becomes an, in, an injury. So back to my worry about injuries, is the funk possibly a, psych, um, a psychic niggle? That it's your, your body telling you something's not right. Something's not right. And if you don't address it, it can actually lead all the way to just a breakdown or just doing something completely crazy. Like I can't stand you, st-, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't think about it on that same continuum, but I do think about it is definitely an, when you know, something's not right. It, you have some mm-hmm. awareness that something is different and something is off. And so when I think of midlife funk, I don't think of it as a midlife crisis. It's not like the classic got to go buy a red Ferrari, got to jump out of a plane, got to go have an affair, like nothing like that. Um, But something is off. So that terminology, what you just used to describe uh, this niggle, I I do see that the terminology is the same. But I think what happens is if you don't address it is the consequences unhappiness. Like you're just not going to feel Mm -hmm. you're not going to likely feel fulfilled You're not going to be as happy as Mm -hmm. you could be. And the thing that we really don't understand because we're not in that place of fulfillment and happiness is really what Mm -hmm. that feels like. And what happens as a result of being in that headspace and heart space, like when you're open and enjoying your life, you show up so differently. Other amazing things happen. You meet different people like Mm -hmm. you grow in ways that is very hard to appreciate when you are in pain like that it's infectious the same way that if you're in pain nobody wants to be around you because (laughs) you make you could be contagious no i'm being honest Um, if you're around somebody who is just dark you're like oh i'm just i'm i'm too tired to deal with timmy right now i i don't want to but if you're like oh joe called or sally oh they're fun then people, they gravitate. So it becomes infectious and it kind of is a feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if people would like, uh, do the, the equivalent of get injured, but they wouldn't be, um, living in living to their ability, to their capacity. Um, and I guess the perspective I didn't have personally at that time was what I was craving and what I was really craving was growth. I didn't understand. I didn't put it in that framework at all. Um, I was craving growth and I was craving a mentor and mm-hmm. I didn't, I see it very clearly now. But so what happened with me was in that six month period after I was like licking my wounds <laughs> and adjusting and <laughs> thinking, and I took a, like a sure. career course from the city and also I hired a life coach. And so the life coach I hired was from the life coach school and introduced me to that thought model that we talked about at the beginning of the interview. And that's when I started to see what was going on. And I started to take a look at, at, uh, fear and I started to see what I was really missing in my job. So I was missing a mentor. I was missing growth. Mm -hmm. And the thing I had identified when I was back there was that I, I missed working one-on-one with people. So in now by growth, can we, can we explore that for a second? What do you mean exactly by, by growth? Is this like a, a spiritual fulfillment almost, or like an artistic fulfillment, that kind of growth, or is it just growth, growth? I mean, what, what exactly? I mean, growth, growth. I mean, um, I'm not, I'm not talking about spiritual at all. I'm just talking about not being stagnant anymore. One of the words that many of my clients use to describe this state of funk is stagnant. And Mm -hmm. stagnant is just not moving. So, you know, when you're in a job and you're just not learning anything new, you're not pushing yourself, you're not creating, you're not, there's just a lot of um, layers of bureaucracy. And yeah, like, it's just, I wasn't... um, I wasn't producing and helping people in the way that I knew that I could. I just. Now, out of curiosity, were you at the state where you kind of just didn't care? No. Isn't that weird? I was not. I cared a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good. I really did care a lot. Like I said, my job was pretty good. Um, They, they're, 
it was an organization to be very proud of that contributed a lot in the world and in the field. Mm -hmm. And the people I worked with were amazing. Uh, But in terms of this growth, this structure to really foster and enable innovation and new ideas um, in my department, because there's a lot of innovation in the organization in general, but the, the way I was experiencing it, it, I felt stagnant. And the other thing was I wasn't working one-on-one. So I was making books, which were helping people, but I made books mm-hmm. with other professionals. I wasn't working one-on-one. And what I found out when I think back to the types of things I was always interested in and being in psychology and being attracted to the type of, even the type of research I did, I really enjoy the one-on-one. And I was wondering why you didn't do that. How you, even you said it was a sociological and in my mind, I was like, that's more of a systematic thing than an individual thing. That's right. It's a curious choice for someone who wanted to have the contact from the get go and explored bonding with, um, with pets, which is to me, the ultimate bond. I, I have, uh, I have cats. So I love cats, (laughs) but, um, Uh, that's a curious, a curious choice. And a thing to your innovation point, um, I'm going to reach back to Adam Hansen. He pointed out something. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. He was saying that people in the marketing field, that's kind of where he came out of. He was the innovation guy at M&M Mars. He said that they last about three, maybe five years at any given position because they just kind of run out and they've got to jump to the new thing that they can spark. So you may well have been deep into that one position. He went into consulting. So he reinvents himself every few months because he's always got a new client and always doing something completely different. So he gets to play, play, play. So I'm wondering if that maybe some of that might have fit yeah. in that you were innovating, but you were you were so deep in that channel and you knew it so well that it maybe wasn't as you weren't reaching. Yeah, I think that's pretty insightful. Um, I remember when I was at the big the beginning of my career, I was doing a lot of work um, in the tobacco field. No pun intended. Like um, in tobacco. Not tobacco, not tobacco cessation, but like tobacco um, policy and tobacco education. Um, And I remember being at the beginning of my career when you went to conferences, you were still learning so much. There were so many people to learn from. And then when you get older and you've been around for 20 years or more, they're learning from you. Right. Except there are fewer (laughs) opportunities to lead in certain organizational systems and structures. Right. So, um, so what happened was when I hired that coach, it's a bit, sorry, you asked the other question about why I didn't go into clinical psychology in the first place. Either one's fine. Well, no, that was a good question. (laughs) And I, I also think about that too. And I think I, I felt pressure to start earning money and going clinical Mm would have went a bigger, it would have meant a much longer time commitment, uh, academically. And that scared Hmm. me at the time. And, um, I don't know. I really did love applied social psychology. I loved it. But you know, when you make these decisions in your early twenties, you really don't know that much. (laughs) So that's what I did as it turned out. So was the easiest course after fashion? Um, it wasn't that easy to get into grad school, but yeah, it, it seemed, it seemed an easier fit for me with my concern about Mm -hmm. making that giant commitment to be in school that much longer. Um, okay. Yeah, that was a good question. And it has crossed my mind when I found myself in, in those offices asking about doing a PhD at this age. Um, like, gee, I sh- maybe I just should have done that earlier. <laughs> but anyway, it turned out great. So I hired the coach. I started to see that, um, wow, coaching really could give me what I'm looking for. The one-on-one connection and time working with people that way. And also as an entrepreneur, the innovation, the creativity and the ability to um, to be in a community of other people who were creating. And that has been unbelievable. And I could not have ever anticipated that the being in that community has been so valuable to nurture my soul. Like-minded people. Um, how's your, how'd your family take all this? Because this is some radical change. I mean, you're one thing, you're very well established, and then now you're 
radically jumping to something else? How did they all react? You know, it was, I think, uh, much better for them in the long run. Like when one, when, when one person is home-based, the rest of the family mm-hmm. wins, <laughs> as far as I, in my perspective, because it makes everything easier for them. I'm more okay. available. I can take care of the pets when somebody needs to be here because the dishwasher broke. I, even though I'm busy being an at-home uh, business person, um, I still have flexibility. And the flexibility is what I think really makes things easier for families. Okay. And then they sense the joy in you and that helps rub off. Definitely. They don't like, nobody likes to be coached without their permission. And sometimes I hear them (laughs) parroting. Like if I respond to something Uh, and I just can't help myself, they're like, "Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know thoughts create feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. But what did happen last week actually made me so happy. One of my sons participated as the guest on my podcast women in the middle. And because one of the things, so on the podcast, we talk about, um, aging, turning 50, Mm -hmm. empty nest, the, the whole transition Mm -hmm. around that career malaise and, um, self care. And then just in general midlife hilarity, because there's a lot of funny things that happened at our (laughs) age. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk to my son who's 21 about empty nest from his perspective. Like, what did it look like hmm. to leave? How did it feel? What What is um, his thoughts about independence and the transition for him? And he had some amazing, amazingly insightful things about it. And and he's on my podcast. And, and he's even told me that he shared my podcast with one of his friends. I did a podcast on how to make a decision, a big decision. And he shared it nice. with some of his friends. And he was floored when he found out it was on Spotify, not just iTunes. He was like, oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of which, I heard you just crossed a pretty big number recently. Oh, I did. You heard that? Where'd you see that? Facebook? Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I hit, so what I was hit the 30,000 download milestone, and I was pretty thrilled about that. Um, just the thing that's exciting about the podcast is it allows you to help people in another way. It's creative. Mm-hmm. I love meeting people like you, being uh, having interesting guests, being hopefully an interesting guest and hearing from hearing from the listeners about what they want to hear and what they would like, you know, more help with. It's, it's a lot of fun. So uh, what I really look it, you know, you don't want to focus too much on the numbers, but I do appreciate those milestones and you just want to, you know, make sure that the podcast is growing. Right. You at least have to look at the numbers to say, the people who heard me last week, I hope they're still there, and maybe a few more people are listening, because if the numbers go south, then, oh, maybe I'm doing something uh, that's not working very well, and I'm not communicating very well. So, obviously, you have to look at numbers. It's not a necessarily cutthroat thing, but it's reality. Yeah, and what you know, when I just was talking about community, one of the other communities that now that I'm in, and you're in too, is this podcast community. So, on Facebook, there are these podcast groups where the people are so generous and helpful. I'm going to a podcast convention in July. Are you going to that? Say hi yeah. to Jill. We're going. I'm sure yeah, she'll we're be going there. Together. And and ah. I, uh, yeah, like I'm in a pot. I'm, podca- I'm a podcaster. Like I never thought I'd be a podcaster. And now I have another place to learn and grow. And also mentor people who are a little behind me and learn from so many people who are farther ahead. That's exciting. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's a little bit of celebrity in a way and fun. Well, you know what is weird? You know how when you like a, you know, you have your radio guy and, you know, you've been listening to the radio show for a while. You feel like you know them. That's that's starting to happen. And I don't know if this has happened with you, but when clients want to talk to me, I offer a free 20 minute insight call to see if we're a fit Mm -hmm. and to talk about coaching together. And I get people from my podcast and these people know me (laughs) like they know me and I don't know them. And on a podcast, you do share a lot. It's very personal. And so people know a lot about me when I'm speaking to them and they're referencing that podcast about that topic in episode 23. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, it's an adjustment. Well, I'd like to think that we're growing with the podcast that 
you know, we're changing too. It's not just the audience, but every guest I have, I learn from that's the whole purpose of this show. That's why it's unstructured. That's why I, I'm talking to really varied guests. Um, I just talked to a trial lawyer last night and the guest I had before that was an audiobook narrator. And speaking of knowing voices, I've listened to him in a lot of books and it's kind of cool talking to him instead of talking at him. Right. That is cool. <laughs> and that, that was really neat. So it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to meet a lot of different people and I'm naturally shy. So this gives me a reason and a purpose. And if I have a purpose, I'm playing a role. Love that. I can do that. That's comfortable. But moving on, you've got a life coach. We've been stalling for a while. And what exactly, what was that process? Well, it was so interesting. It, I was skeptical at the beginning because my background in psychology, I was like, oh, I hope this life coach doesn't cross any professional boundary. <laughs> you know? I was going to ask if, if, okay, I was thinking of um, physicians versus chiropractors. If there might have been a little of that in your mind, like I'm from the professional medical community, is this? It was in my mind. Really, a legitimate. It was thing? totally in my mind, and I thought I'm going to go with an open mind because, uh, because I'm very curious about this and what I've seen online, I really like. So let's just see. So I was mm-hmm. in a group, and we did have some one-on-one, and I was blown away. No crossing any lines, and in fact, I was acting as if. Like my experience, of course, I've had therapy a couple of times in my life. So I was kind of going in thinking, okay, well, I'm going to tell you about that thing that happened to me when I was a kid. And every time I went back, she brought it right back to what was going on in my mind right now. There was no, nothing weird that happened. It was very focused on what am I thinking now? How does it make me feel? What results am I getting as a result of thinking this way? Hmm. And showing me my thinking, showing me that the results I have in my life are absolutely proving my thoughts. And the one thought that she uncovered for me blew my mind and convinced me I must be a life coach immediately. And I'll tell you what it was. It's very embarrassing. Are you ready? (laughs) Okay. So I am uh, not a tall person. But yet you have giant dogs. I do have giant dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Irony, anyone? It's so funny. I am 4'10". Okay. And okay. I had this thought that I didn't even know I had, that it was harder for me to lose weight because I was short. Now think. That's not unheard of. Well, think about it. I'm not saying that it's necessarily reasonable, but I'm saying it's not uncommon. Well, I. Oh, I don't have the frame for that. I don't have the height for that. Oh, or I'm too big to be a runner or I'm, I, I, I understand yeah. that. So it's not, it's not. Okay. It is irrational, but it's not ridiculous. Well, it, and I, there was no judgment on whether or not my thoughts were ridiculous. The point of the coaching was to show me that I have that thought and to look what it's creating for me. So when I thought Uh it's harder for me to lose weight because I'm small, I'm short, right away, imagine how that made me feel. Hopeless. Mm -hmm. Like it was... Right, because you can't grow. You can do a lot of things, but gaining a couple inches... Exactly, like there was nothing I could do about it. Just hopeless. I, I, I can't. So when I feel hopeless... What kind of behavior do I likely have when I feel that way? And it's very um, pulled back. It's not very active. It's minimized. It's, it's, it's not going for it. It's not massive action. It's the opposite of massive action. It's kind of like failing sure. in advance. And then so that's the result yeah. that I created for myself. I completely proved that it was harder for me to lose weight. I did not lose weight. And it was that mm-hmm. thought that was at the crux of it all. I didn't even know I had this thought. It's one of those ironic things that, um, was it? If you think you're a, a loser, you're right. If you think you're a winner, you're That's right. exactly what happens with your thoughts. And so if you're not satisfied with the results that you have in your life, just look around, right? If you haven't taken the mm-hmm. trips or accomplished the goals or, or whatever it is, if you look around your life, you're not satisfied. The reason is because of your thinking. There's something that you're thinking that is creating that personal result for you. And so when, when I 
really looked at what was going on with my weight loss because I had uh, my kids and it had been, you know, they were young adults now and I hadn't lost that baby weight. And I really thought it was just never going to happen because I was under five foot. I really had to think about it. And I saw, I saw what was going on. I'd never seen it before. I completely saw Mm -hmm. that it was 110% within my uh, wheelhouse to think differently, feel differently and, and have a different result. And then what happened? Well, then I understood how to lose weight and I became a life coach. <laughs> exactly. And did you lose yeah, the weight? I did. And so did you take any particular actions or just, was it literally enough to have the thought and then you just made more conscious choices that helped to reinforce the thought that you could move? Well, forward? you have to, you have to take action. You got to be very mindful of everything you're doing. The main thing I learned through that, though, uh, was understanding that my body needed a lot less food than I thought it did. And (laughs) so, you know, there's lots of things that you need to learn about how to nourish your body for fuel instead of using food for entertainment. (laughs) So there's a big learning curve (laughs) with with unpeeling the onion of all of those thoughts. But the real poisonous thought for me was this this one that I didn't even know I had. And so right. after that happened, I got a uh, an education severance from my employer when I got laid off. And it was the exact right. amount of tuition to learn how to be a coach. That's it was happy. the exact amount. So I went, ah, That's a happy coincidence. That. Yeah, exactly. I thought. So it's a double gift. It, you got laid off and they paid you to move forward. I mean, yep. honestly, it couldn't have been any better. it hurt at the time, but it's like a bandaid. You, you rip the bandaid off and go, Oh, it's healed underneath. Absolutely (laughs) right. It could, it was a double gift. And I feel so fortunate that, I mean, I was in a union, you know, and, and as in a union, I got an education severance and it wasn't a ton, but it was the exact amount of money that I needed to, to make the leap and take the step. And then I never looked back as I got my training Um, the part that became really obvious was being an awesome life coach is one part of it, but you have to Mm -hmm. learn how to be an entrepreneur, which is another whole learning curve. (laughs) And, Mm. and that's where I started to appreciate the community that, that I was in of entrepreneurs, of people who were really actively managing their minds of people who were really intentional about growing. It didn't matter Mm. how old they were, (laughs) they were ready to grow and, And they understood that when they made an excuse, they had to really be careful about it, really look and see what thought was creating that for them. Like this is a group of people who owned responsibility for their emotions. And it's very inspiring to be in a growth community like this, to be with people who are open to change, open to taking a big look at what's going on, ready to help you also Um, If you have coaching questions or if you have business questions and if they don't have an answer, everybody is also on this learning journey. So we're very connected to all kinds of other people who might be able to help. So it's really I can't even tell you how inspiring it is to be in this this kind of community. It's fantastic. Is that where you met? That is. She's part of that. Yes, it's exactly where I met Jill. And the the irony about Jill is that we're from the same part of the world. I'm originally from the Philadelphia area. She lives very close Hmm. to where I grew up. And so um, I just love that. I I just love that we have that in common. But that's exactly. And you're in Canada now. I live in Toronto now. I'm a dual citizen. Guess where I am going in July. You coming here? Oh. Yeah, for my 20th anniversary. Oh, that's congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, I may be uh, looking you up to get a good restaurant recommendation I'd, for uh, the anniversary. I'd be date. happy to help you out with that. No problem. Oh, yeah. No, Toronto's great, and you get a great discount on your dollar right now. You get a nice exchange rate. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. Yeah. Yeah, so I love it here. I came here um, in 1983. I've been here for a while now. Couple yeah. minutes. You like the winter? No, I can't. Well, I guess Philadelphia is. No, not I can't that stand it. I'm very grouchy about it. I've done a <laughs> podcast about it. I've done a blog about it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a problem. I've spoken to my husband too that um, I would like some kind of a plan. I don't know what it means, uh, but in retirement or 
something. I, I just need some warmth and sunshine in the winter. I can't take it. I just can't take it. <laughs> I have a question for what? you. Well, think of the weather as uh, numbers yeah, on I a know. scale. It's just how you're interpreting it. <laughs> you know, that's. Just, I had to do a lot of self-coaching about it, and I did a whole podcast on how to be less grouchy about the winter because I do get very grouchy about it. And you're right. It is my thoughts creating that. Um, and I have to be very aware of it because the winter is about six weeks longer here than it is in the Philadelphia area. It's just a little longer and it starts a little like the spring starts a little later. The winter starts a little earlier. And, uh, yeah, like it's just a complete waste of time to be that miserable for that amount of time. It's totally something (laughs) I need to work on a hundred percent, but my dog loves it. Oh, I'm sure you've got a new family. Yeah, right? and he, I, and that is one of the things I think about that he is so happy in the cold weather, and that does make me feel um, happy that I can provide that for him. He's a Lancier Noof. He's black and white, and he has an Instagram page, Nico the Noof, N I K O, <laughs> and he nice. is so entertaining and so slobbery and so messy um, and adorable. Hmm. <laughs> I grew when I grew up. I had a Great Pyrenees, and you understand. Yeah, except I grew up in Tucson, <gasps> Arizona, so it was hard. Oh my God! So when I grew up in the Philadelphia area, we bred St. Bernards, and I have mm-hmm. to say that when I turned fifty, I did a lot of reflection, and mm-hmm. I really, I I really understood that I wanted uh, that experience for my family of having a big dog again. So when my husband and I got married, we had a golden retriever. Her name was Yofi. She was amazing. And then we had another golden retriever, another amazing golden named Jasper. So for 20 years, we had golden retrievers. And when Jasper died, it was so painful. I just said, I need to switch it up. I cannot. Like golden retrievers are so sensitive and they care so much what you think about them. And oh my God, Mm -hmm. the dog just pulled my heartstrings. So I thought we need to switch it up. I want a big dog, <laughs> just like. But their lifespan's not great. Well, we feed our dog a very special diet, and his father lived to 15. <laughs> That's very yes, long. It uh, is. So we one. picked the Newfoundland because of the water. So there's a family cottage, and uh, we really wanted a swimmer. And he's mm. amazing. And we take him to water rescue training. So. He's working on his oh, skills. Cool. He needs to earn his uh, keep. And um, well, he loves, oh, he that, loves it. Sure. And he's learning how to pull a cart because carting is a classic <laughs> new um, activity. And we, you have a whiskey barrel on that's his a Saint yet? Bernard. We don't do. Well, they can do the same. They're, they they can do. They it can, too. but no, we don't do that. Um, he has a a no stink collar because he's always wet and and he's. He's just oh. beautiful. He's beautiful. He's very smart. Um, uh, but he he's so different than Golden's. He knows he's amazing. Like, Golden's are a little bit more insecure. <laughs> like, do you love me? Do you love me? And he's just like, I know you love me. <laughs> he's so handsome. <laughs> People stop on the street when we walk him. Not one walk mm. goes by where somebody doesn't, like, slow down or actually pull the car over and get out to come meet him. He's so He's so <laughs> handsome. And let me guess, he thinks he's a little dog, though. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and he is a mess. Like, there's really no, he's a mess. And you can't be that Mm. worried about things like that. We use a gate to keep him from the front part of the house because the slobber, Mm. um, you know, you do find slobber on the ceiling. You find slobber. (laughs) There's slobber. And because he's big and he likes the water, he tracks in a lot of muck and, like, he's a mess. So you have to really relax about all of that. <laughs> well, maybe it helps reset priorities. Well, I have a gate and he doesn't go in the front part of the house unless we're like really supervising him. So the back part of the house, I don't worry so much about the front part of the house. Like I don't want slobber on my counters. He's tall enough that he can put his head. He lays yeah. and look at Right. Him. And then there's like slobber on your counter. I don't like, I don't like that. <laughs> Call me crazy. I don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just he's a true. doll though. He's a doll. I we couldn't be happier with him, and he's on this ancestral diet, which is this fish-based diet. So he has a lot of salmon and herring mm. and sardines and fish-based um, kibble. So we he he we're very 
uh, supportive of his diet. It is, uh, we want him to live as long as his father. So we're doing everything we can. Well, that's awesome. So now what's next for Susie Rosenstein? Well, um, I am really enjoying the podcast. And I am working on restructuring my business a little bit. So there, there might be some changes coming up in the next few months. I'm really uh, loving my niche of talking to women, helping them love life after 50. And so I would say that my ideal client is usually between 48 and early 50s. So somebody <laughs> turning 50, somebody newly 50, somebody feeling that funk. But like I said, I do have clients who are in their early 30s, late 20s even. I even have clients who are older, like in their late 60s, early 70s. But the ones I'm trying to find on purpose are at that age. And Right where you were. About. Yeah, I'm, I'll be 55 this year. But where you were when oh, you Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. And that, that lead up to 50. So right now I'm doing, um, I have private coaching, one-on-one coaching. I have a package mm-hmm. called um, Nine Steps to Regret Proof Your Life. So I think about regret proofing, regret proofing your career, regret proofing your relationships and regret proofing yourself and really um, just opening yourself up to living a life that's much more intentional than than the one you've been living. Because I, I don't know where most of us are in a chaotic blur and <laughs> we just got to <laughs> slow things down and really think about what we want because life really is short. So what's next for me is I'm just looking, I'm working on a few very creative ways to get the message out, to help more, more women and to, um, to really work on my podcast and keep finding really interesting guests. So the guests that I look for are people who've done some big, scary thing so that they love Mm. their life after 50. So people who have thought about something, made the big change, and now they're definitely happier than they were. Well, awesome. Where can people follow you and and follow your journey? Oh, thank you for asking. So you can find me on iTunes with the podcast, Women in the Middle, and all the other sites where you can find podcasts that you love, Spotify. And you can also go to my website, www.susierosenstein.com. And I have an awesome freebie called 10 surprisingly simple things you can do to bust out of your midlife funk. And you can find that it's a free download, free ebook. You can find it at www.susierosenstein.com forward slash midlife funk. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, but mostly Facebook and um, Facebook. I'm the midlife coach. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on and I will definitely be following you myself and I encourage everybody else to, and to check out your podcast and hope to hear from you. Thank you, you soon. so much for this opportunity. It was really, really great talking to you. Thank you. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as unstructured P as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.